Hey, I'm Kyla Graham. I am an accountant who's passionate about helping nonprofit leaders speak confidently about their money. You are listening to the Nonprofit Nuggets podcast. And before we get into the episode, got to give you this disclaimer. Any accounting, business, or tax advice in this here podcast is not intended as a thorough, in-depth analysis of your specific issues. It's not a substitute for a formal opinion. It is not good enough to avoid tax-related penalties. Got to tell you this because don't want y'all coming for me. Did you know that I offer free 30-minute strategy sessions? Strategy sessions are time for you to come with questions about the challenges your nonprofit is facing and for us to work through what that looks like. Are there some resources that you need to be connected with? Are there some tools that we have that could guide you? Strategy sessions are free because I want you to have this time to really flesh out and talk out loud about what your organization is needing. And if synergy is a fit, great. But if not, we really want to make sure that you have what you need to take the next best step. Book a time on my calendar using Calendly backslash synergy slash strategy. Link, of course, will be in the show. Back to the episode. Hey. This is my full episode with Rachel Miller Blight. We dig into some, I don't know, some people might find it a sensitive topic, but I really wanted to be sure to cover it and want to know what you think. What's the elephant and what do you think is the elephant in the room for nonprofits these days? All right. Bye. Hi, Rachel. How are you today? I'm good, Kyla. How are you? I am good. So welcome to the Nonprofit Nuggets podcast. Today, we are talking with Rachel Miller-Blake. <laughs> and Rachel is the CEO of Miller-Blake Consulting, and they help nonprofits as well as professional associations do their governance work and make sure that they have a better understanding, a better grasp about what the governance body, be that the board or members of the management team, need to do to keep the organization running. So, Rachel. Today, what are you celebrating? I'm celebrating my family and my friends uh, in a, I'll be real about kind of the time that we're living in post-COVID. Um, my day, my daily life is really very much about um, taking care of and valuing the people in my life who are most precious to me, um, which means, you know, my husband, my daughter, and um, our friends and our wider community, trying to keep in touch with them. Well, that's, that's so good. I feel like that's something we, I've been trying to do better about is like, I was like, I'm going to text my brothers. I promise you, I will reach out to you. <laughs> And not just like putting it off indefinitely because we just don't like with all this happening, everyone's dealing with it differently. So I do mm -hmm. love that you're like making the time to be like, let me check in on these yeah. people. It's, it's a time to really celebrate the people who we love the most and the things that we treasure the most. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about you aside from loving your family and friends. Tell me more about you and your work. Sure. So I'm very new to consulting, actually. I've been working in the nonprofit and association management field for about 16 years. Um, and for the past 10 years, I've really hopped on the governance 
train, so to speak. Uh, I really, I really, I started specializing in managing governance. You could say I started from my first job out of college, which was for an association. I was an executive assistant. And when you have that kind of job, the first thing that you find yourself doing is uh, planning board meetings and staffing board meetings. <laughs> and I found, you know, I started to grow professionally. I was, you know, really growing as an administrator. And when I stepped into my first management role, um, it was one that focused specifically on managing governance. And I realized I was in graduate school at the time studying organizational science. And I really realized this, this is very fascinating and very interesting because so much of the health of the organization really depends on this office. It really <laughs> depends on this function. And I was also wondering why isn't there more out there that really kind of supports and um, studies and analyzes how, how to do this and how to do it well. There's there's a lot out there in terms of a board source. ASAE has a lot out there, um, but I really found it's a very underdeveloped competency in nonprofits and in associations. It kind of depends on how big the association or the organization is, um, and and it was something that I just kind of clung to as I have a knack for this. I'm really fascinated by it, so I really pursued opportunities professionally. Um, that really focus in on governance and really being able to develop good governance systems. And then when I moved, um, I, I moved into consulting a couple of years ago and I found that it was a really good opportunity to try to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, what are some of the components in addition to the inner workings of a board of directors? What are those components that are essential to governance? Such as, you know, do you have effective bylaws? Do you have strong policies? How do you manage things like, you know, which is very much in your world, the financial oversight piece? Um, and so those are things that I find in consulting, I'm able to add capacity and um, help, you know, expand the capacity of organizations that need to devote more time and attention to that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, allergies are very, very present in, <laughs> excuse me, in the Washington DC area. Um, so, so it really was an opportunity for me to kind of say, Hey, if you need more capacity to address some of these specific issues, I'm here to help. Um, and so I really try to work, uh, both with, uh, prime, I, I tend to work primarily with staff uh -huh. who really kind of are the ones that are sort of, doing that work and really needing that kind of support. Um, but I also, you know, try to make myself available to educate and um, provide resources for board leaders themselves, because often, um, depending on the size of the organization, they find themselves having to do a lot of that um, hands-on work. When it comes to doing that hands-on work, what is a way that organizations can better maximize their time working with you? So um, I think that it, it sometimes comes to the point of just needing to take a bit of a leap when it comes to committing to having the time um, and just making time. Um, <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but it, it does take an investment of both time and resources. 
Um, and and I don't tend to pretend that this work isn't time consuming uh-huh. as well. Um, so sometimes it, it I think it really has a lot to do with sort of um, trying to identify that capacity, whether it's in terms of time or in terms of resources, and being willing to make it a priority. Um, because governance, <clears throat> on the surface, governance is not a moneymaker. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a primary service. It's not something that you can charge a fee for. Um, but when you think about governance as um, really the strategic wheel of the organization, if you don't, if that's not healthy, and if you don't have the systems and processes in place, uh, your organization is going to suffer for it. You won't have uh, much capacity to ensure the resources, to fundraise, things like that. Um, so, so I would say a lot of it is really just about committing to doing some of the deeper work and building processes and being willing to um, identify kind of new, more systemized way of do, ways of doing things. Yeah, I feel like you and I and so many others are just part of that behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. This needs to happen. I know you, it doesn't look nice and pretty or sound fun. But it just makes things so much easier (laughs) later down the road. Can you tell us a little bit about a time when an organization may have thought, hey, we're getting into this thing. And it's just about getting the minutes done. But they realized it was something so much more. It was so much more than just let's make sure the bylaws are accurate. Um, so one, one example that, that I was kind of thinking about earlier today that, um, it might be answering a different question that you're going to ask. <laughs> um, but I, um, I, d- I don't want to name names about previous organizations, but, no worries. Forward, but I will mention, um, I, I worked on standing up the board of a charter school once and, um, it was interesting how much learning went into something as simple as as amending the bylaws. Uh-huh. Um, there was a lot of kind of legal regulatory elements that, you know, on the surface you think, oh, we're just going to stand up a board. We're going to identify all the people who are going to be on it, and and there you go. But what we found was um, th- between the corporate structure as well as some of the like legal regulatory and then some of the kind of broader political aspects. Yeah. There was a lot of synthesizing that needed to go on um, that, that involved some rather complex amendments to the bylaws that required, um, you know, training and identifying, you know, how do you set this board up to obey sunshine laws? And, um, you know, it was an interesting opportunity that that I really learned from it, and I think the organization certainly learned that um, it's never really as simple <laughs> as it might seem, um, and that's why and that's why you really do kind of need to dig in, um, pay attention to those details, and really sort of um, embrace the idea that yeah, bylaws are binding. <laughs> You know, um, I, I worked with, I worked with a, a president, um, who was also an attorney once and, and she, she said, she's like, you do realize these are binding and we need to be ready to like fully execute them. And I'm like, that is music to my ears. Like I, 
really do um, appreciate that when when you embrace that, when you understand that you know you need to be able to deliver on what you're building, um, that there are a lot of stakes and implications behind it. Uh, then then you're going to set yourself up for success, and it's especially important when it's a new organization. Yeah, I like to say words mean things. I'm like, you mm-hmm. can't just say it <laughs> because. <laughs> what are we what are we truly saying and what does that mean and sometimes it's a matter of when you're working with new people who've never set up a new organization and providing that level of education to say okay so we're not going to say it that way because Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is that broader implication that that would have Mm -hmm. which leads me to my other question was what what is one thing that you wish more nonprofits knew or more nonprofits acted on? <laughs> I, I wish more nonprofits understand and embrace the idea that governance matters. Um, I think that it, it, it's particularly managing governance sometimes gets treated as either a side desk job or an afterthought, or it gets lumped in with another function. Um, my experience working with charitable nonprofits, I don't think this is everyone's experience, but I think it, it tends to happen a lot that the development office kind of gets governance. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I think, I, I think I'm really kind of underscoring what I was mentioning before. And that is that it, it's important to take it seriously. It's important to invest the energy necessary to, to really boost the quality of governance systems. Um, but I think also I tend to have a bit of a pet peeve when it comes to talking about governance as though it's only about the board. Okay. And and you know, I think there's some literature out there that that kind of hits on that actually, that that sort of hits on the idea that when when people talk about governance, they think, well, that's the board's job. Uh-huh. And and that is kind of this isolated thing that sort of lives over here and there isn't necessarily this broader understanding that you know the work of governance sure it is the domain of the board like there's no question about the idea that the the board or whoever the highest governing body is that they have the authority but to say that oh it's just the board's job or (laughs) this is just the board is supposed to do the fundraising or, you know, as, as easy as it might be to say, well, governance, that that's not really related. To me. It, it encompasses the entire organization. It permeates throughout the entire organization. And it is in and of itself a system of which the board is part of. But it's when you have a broader understanding of the way that it serves the entire organization as a system mm-hmm. i think it's easier for more people to really buy into it and for more people to share that responsibility yeah that makes that makes sense i've ne- i know i've never thought about it in terms of wow this permeates the whole organization but that's definitely how i think about the finances i'm like everyone plays a part even if you don't request a check you still need right. to understand the process so that clearly means it's true for governance. Like just because you're not the one who's setting up that rule doesn't mean mm-hmm. you need to, you don't need to have an understanding about this is how we operate. And this is the system we have in place to do things. 
Right, right. And I would maybe argue that, and I don't know if you've experienced this too, but I, I think that financially, you know, talking about things more in terms of finances affect everyone, I think is almost more accessible to people because I think people who are line workers or people who are even out in the field, they kind of understand that what they do has some impact dollar like dollars and cents wise whether it be staff time or do i have enough money to provide this kind of service etc um and and i kind of envy that in the sense that there's a little bit more like everyday pedestrian vocabulary attached to kind of embracing financial stewardship Uh whereas i think governance sometimes just seems like a much headier concept and a little bit harder to kind of wrap your head around a little bit yeah I don't know if you experience that or or, or I, if that kind of resonates I do think it resonates I do I do get that people people think finances is are more accessible I don't think they always appreciate they're like it happens please submit the thing like <laughs> right right you know you play a part, but I need you to, like, buy into that part. I right, would right. say when it comes to making it more tangible, for from a governor's perspective, you mentioned, like, bring, having the language in a finance way. But is helping them come up with a language something that you do? Do you help them say, like, how do we make this more accessible to everyone? That's a really good question. And I think that there are certain touch points Mm -hmm. that I tend to sort of work inside of that that help to kind of emphasize the ways in which governance sort of spreads across the organization and um, one of the ways in which I I do that is I provide a lot of support not only with boards but also with committees Mm -hmm. and committees are a key way that kind of governance spreads its tentacles across the organization (laughs) And I think that when you can introduce standard practices and educate people about governance concepts that are specific to perhaps the committee that they work on, or if there is a volunteer advisory group that they work with, those are opportunities to really introduce things like effective meeting management, developing strong agendas, um, even being able to contextualize parliamentary procedure, things like that. Um, you know, that is one way. Another way is report development. When people have an audience or, um, have an audience in the board, if they need to do presentations or if they need to interface uh-huh. with the governing body, that is another really key opportunity to, um, introduce some of the ways in which you can, can kind of create that language and and help um help people sort of understand how do you communicate with a board that helps them uh function at a higher level maintain kind of that 30,000 foot view mm-hmm. um so i i think that it's it's not so much a matter of everybody in an organization needs to sit down and learn about governance <laughs> <laughs> as much as i would love to teach that class uh <laughs> It's um it certainly is something that in in different engagements that I've had it's been a little bit more organic and it's been a little bit more situational. Okay, so I, I guess that makes sense that it would be an organic process. Like we need to be in it, and then we'll learn. Okay, this is 
this is the turn we need to make. <laughs> If you had an organization that realized they needed to shift or an organization was thinking like, hey, we really need to dig in to some of our governance work, what type of organizations is it that you work with? So my, I, I guess I've referred to it sort of as my bread and butter, but um, my, my stomping ground, so to speak, tends to be professional associations. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to split my focus a little bit, though. While I have extensive experience with associations, I also try to work with charitable nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, I especially want to be able to support nonprofits that uh, really don't have the full capacity to have the in-house uh, support that can be provided by somebody who is a governance specialist. Um, so, uh, you know, primarily for me, I tend to split my attention between charitable nonprofits and associations. There are two different beasts in a yeah. lot of ways. They are structured pretty differently. Um, charitable nonprofits are usually a lot more donor funded, whereas associations um, tend to have a much more of like a, they sometimes feel more like for-profit organizations because uh -huh. they tend to be a little bit less abashed about making money yeah. um <laughs> so so i think that just my experience but also you know i care about both kinds of organizations and oh. and definitely appreciate the differences and and certainly want to be able to support both kinds of organizations okay and you mentioned that those you and you mentioned working with those that don't necessarily have the capacity to hire someone so is there a size that you work with in terms of the number of people on their on their management team or is there a dollar value you know i want to make myself available to organizations of all different sizes so i i tend to even scale my fees in such a way that i want to be able to support organizations of many different sizes i would say uh, it tends to be organizations with kind of either uh, some of the larger budgets and larger staff, mm -hmm. because oftentimes what I find is usually there's someone kind of already on the staff side who this is something that they're that they're doing that they need to work with another professional on. Um, organizations that don't have that kind of staff support typically struggle to have the capacity to really focus the attention, kind of like I was saying before, being able to have the capacity and the resources to really devote attention to it. So I do think it, it, it tends to be some of the larger, more established organizations that are able to work with a consultant like me because um, they already have some of the capacity, they just need more capacity, and that's why they're looking for outside help. Okay, and when it comes to working the actual demographics that which you work with, have you worked with any Black-led organizations that be, they were founded by Black people or the current leadership team is an ex a Black person? As a consultant, I, I haven't had any clients that fit that demographic, but as a professional, I certainly have. Um, working with a charter operator, um, certainly helping to serve populations that are um, in underserved communities. 
uh, you know, Black Latino demographics, certainly. Um, I've also, you know, just from working in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, being part of a diverse workforce as well, um, you know, has given me a lot of experience working with different communities. So uh, I, I kind of sometimes ask myself, you know, why is it that my clients haven't been quite as diverse? And I think a lot of it is uh, you know, certainly there is a lot more room for organizations that are Black-led, that that it would be great to have more opportunities to work with organizations that are serving more diverse communities. And um, that is certainly something that, you know, being able to have a diverse client base is certainly something that I aspire toward. <laughs> Definitely. I think it's something that we all do. And I, like, I asked the question, like we talked about why I was going to ask this question, but I, for mm -hmm. listeners, part of asking this question was around the idea of cultural comp cultural competency, mm -hmm. as well as um, one of the things Rachel mentioned before was just in the nonprofit sphere, it is a very white landscape. And the question has to be raised about what's happening because for me, as a black person, if you have not seen any of the images <laughs> that I posted, um, it I know tons of black people who run nonprofits, and usually it, the the problem is about scaling. And so the concern is, how are we going to reach those organizations who are doing great work? How do they get tapped in? How do they find vendors that they can work with, people who can help them build that capacity? And one of the things that I want to be able to do with the podcast is help reveal like hey these are some people that you could work with as well as have they worked with other black-led organizations before mm -hmm. so that you know hey is there a communication that i'm gonna need to do to make sure that this is clear and i am a big fan of if you're not comfortable saying <laughs> that hey i'm not comfortable because for both parties this is going to be a learning experience and right, so everyone right. To say, even if it's not necessarily about your racial demographic, if it's if you are working with a queer-led organization, being able to say, or for me, if it's if I'm working with an Asian population, I've never necessarily worked with that, to be able to say, hey, what are the some of the nuances that I'm just not gonna get that mm -hmm. I don't want to be a barrier to how we work together, and I want to make sure that you get what you came for. <laughs> right and don't right. feel like you can't say hey I'm uncomfortable this feels weird and I just don't know um so I mm -hmm. thank you for <laughs> thank you for being the first one I actually get to ask this question so if you heard <laughs> sure. an interview before and you did not hear this question it's new yeah <laughs> Rachel was yeah well and and I kind of like to comment on that just a little bit yeah. because what you bring up I think is so important because diversity onboards is such a huge issue right now uh -huh. um but it's also kind of interesting because if, if you look at the the conversations that have been going on usually there's kind of this cycle of somebody drops a report that says there's not enough diversity on boards and then there's all of this talk and yeah. then five yeah. years later you're like there's still no diversity on boards and when we know this, so what's going to change? <laughs> right. And and I think, you know, what you say about cultural competency is is kind of spot on when you figure that I think what sometimes happens is there is sort of this um, kind of, and people get a little, you know, 
entropic, I don't think that's the word, myopic, a little bit more navel gazy about about just being like, well, we don't feel like we have the cultural competency, so we're just going to kind of stay over here. And I, I think that we don't really get to that point where we can say, uh, yeah, I, I understand why there is some tension here or, or why we're maybe not connecting with a certain population. And that kind of needs to be the argument for that's why we need, you know, black representation on boards. That's why we need boards that look more like and reflect more of the community that they're trying to serve. And, and there is a certain kind of risk that you need to take a little bit that involves sort of that discomfort. Yeah. That comes from, I don't know if I can serve this community because I, I don't know if I relate to them, but I think that's, that should be more of a catalyst to say, <laughs> that's why we need more people. I mean, more voices around the table because I don't necessarily have all of the answers or all of the, you know, experiences. So, so I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to solve the problem of diversity on boards, but I think it is an important, it, it's kind of that, elephant in the room that I think does need to be talked about yeah <laughs> it's like does that help does that not help <laughs> it does help no I think that I actually I'm, I'm going to definitely keep that in so that'll probably be our long segment we'll have we'll have okay. so much I'm super excited um so much to talk about. now I want to switch to, to some of the behind the scenes for you so we can drop some tips of that. so for you Rachel super excited I want to know you, you transitioned into your consulting role just a, a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. what's one piece of advice that has helped you grow as a business, a leader and a business owner? Oh, wow. So I feel like I'm still, I'm still very much a newbie <laughs> when it comes to this. Um, what was one of the things I was thinking about? So I think one of the things that I've especially had to learn, um, you know, I, I keep coming back to the reality that we're living in with the post-COVID. I keep calling it the post-COVID era. I think that's like almost a little too grand to be saying, but, um, you know, I've been forced to really rethink a lot in terms of, you know, what strategically, how am I trying to grow my business, promote my business, position it. And and because I'm so new to consulting, it's certainly something that I'm constantly rethinking. And I think one of the things I've especially had to learn recently is the the necessity of rolling with the punches and and kind of being able to adopt a mindset of there's really no perfect way to do this. So I'm going to do <laughs> that I can. And um, you know, trust that things can can grow and evolve in ways. Um, I think it's easy to think, well, this is how so-and-so does it. So I should just kind of follow in that footstep, in those footsteps or in that direction. Uh, But this is a learning experience. There's, There's so much of learning and doing at the same time when it comes to starting your own business. I think I decided from the beginning that I need to check my perfectionist attitudes at the door when it comes to this experience that is trying to be an entrepreneur because, um, you know, perfectionism serves its purpose when you're trying to be very accurate with systems and processes for organizations. Uh-huh. But when you're trying to be an entrepreneur, sometimes you kind of have to set that aside and say, 
I'm, I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to, to learn from things whether they work or don't work. Yeah. That's good. And reminds me that we have to give ourselves grace to say, when I learn better, I'll do better. And I'm not going to judge like my past work on like the new information, because that's where I think sometimes we're like, ah, oh, I could have done that better. How, well, how would you have known to do that better? If mm-hmm. You just didn't know. So giving ourselves the grace to say, I, it may not be perfect, but this is good. Yeah. <laughs> and we are going to move forward. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how do you um, reduce your overwhelm or stress or have you, have you figured it out yet? I think I'm still figuring it out. Um, I, I tend to be kind of an anxious person to begin with. So it's, it's sort of an ongoing learning, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ongoing learning experience to really, to be able to kind of step back and say, you know, this is what I need in the moment. And I may not be getting X, Y, Z done, but you know, you really do kind of have to approach things from a more mindfulness space. I know that can be a buzzword, but, but it really is important to kind of maintain the sense of what are your priorities in the moment? Is it always professional or, or, you know, how much do you really need to focus on what you personally need in the moment? Um, so that's a, an ongoing learning experience. But I think also, you know, I, I love being productive. I love accomplishing things. So if I can reach the end of the day thinking, yeah, I got, I got stuff done. Like I, I got that blog post up and I'm really glad that I did. Um, you know, being able to kind of count those little wins to, uh, can certainly help when, especially when you feel as though you're not 100% sure how everything is adding up <laughs> in the long run. So it's a work in progress. It's definitely a work in progress. Definitely. So you just mentioned prioritizing. What's one thing that you would like more organizations to prioritize? Um well, you know, I, I think that one thing, I, I think, you know, my, my base, I think I've already kind of expressed this in the sense that my baseline is always governance. <laughs> um, but I think that in the context of governance, I, I wish more, more boards and more organizations would really think uh, about how they are approaching their meetings and how meetings are being planned. Um, I think agendas are sometimes underappreciated tools that boards can can really turn to to be intentional and strategic about the conversations that they're having uh-huh. um you know i having both been a volunteer leader as well as a professional working in this space i've kind of experienced the gamut where uh you know board meetings can just feel like afterthoughts and you don't get anything until the day before, and there's not a lot of planning, that's not going to set you up to be strategic. Um, so I'm a big proponent of, you know, be thoughtful about the agenda planning process. Don't, don't just look in Robert's rules and say, oh, this is what an agenda is supposed to look like. You have a lot to work with when it comes to really thinking about how are we planning this time, which is like, you know, for most nonprofits, it's like two to three hours of the space of time when the board has the ability to make really important decisions and take really important action. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, hopefully all organizations are taking very seriously because it should be taken seriously. 
But I think, you know, those that lack the capacity, sometimes that kind of falls by the wayside. And I, I really hope my, my hope and wish for organizations is that they take that, that meeting time and that meeting space uh, very seriously. Uh-huh. Yeah. That agenda, I think, is one of the best tools to be like, mm-hmm. did we, did we put this together before today? <laughs> That way, you actually know what you want to talk about. And I, even internally here, um, my COO, my virtual administrator, we have a standing meeting and our agenda, I keep open as a notebook (laughs) so that I'm constantly adding to it throughout the week. So we Mm -hmm. don't just come to the day of the meeting to say, oh, what are we talking about? It's there going and then I can refine it that you know, before our meeting, as opposed to saying, Mm -hmm. I didn't put anything on the list. Let's talk about all the things that are just currently in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, definitely being, like you said, being more thoughtful, really maximizing that time is how Mm -hmm. people will want to, I don't know if they want to stay, but they can manage being on the board when they know, okay, this is not a fly by the seat of our pants type of deal. We're Right, right. Well, and, and then there's also, I think that the example that you bring up is, is a really good one. And it reminds me of some other strategies that organizations, not just nonprofits, but even for-profits use, which is they, they use like shared documents to maintain ongoing communication between meetings to be able to identify issues and keep up on, um, you know, whether they are shared briefing materials, uh, or, or just updates on certain situations, there is uh, the opportunity to maintain communication so that when you get to the table, you're not drinking from a fire hose. Um, that is, <laughs> that's the big trope that we talk about a lot, which is, um, you know, are you, when you come to the table, are you just reporting out on things that have happened in the past? Or are you um, really thinking about so this is where we are now where do we need to go and and how you structure the agenda how you share information and distribute reports i think there's a lot of innovative a lot of innovative ideas out there that go beyond just the traditional you know we're going to do an agenda and then we're going to pass out all these briefing reports and you have seven days to review them (laughs) um you know, those are the standards and, and those standards work, I think, for most organizations. But I think people are pretty hungry for more innovative approaches to how do you how do you use those tools? How do you make those tools work for the the particular group and the particular culture that you're that you're working in? Yeah. Thank you so much. Like I realized I was like, we said 30 minutes and we have talked for way more than that. And I love it. Personally, I, I enjoy talking with you, Rachel. So <laughs> it's my pleasure. I love talking to you too, Kyla. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. So before you go though, I have two last questions. So one being, what is a podcast or a book that you has helped you or that you would recommend to others? So um, I'm a big podcast listener. Mm-hmm. Uh, weirdly enough, I've been I've been listening to podcasts a little bit less. I have been listening to more audiobooks, but um, I actually have two podcasts. Yeah, I I can't just pick one. No way. Um, but one so one podcast that I really love is the Good Place the podcast. 
which I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show, The Good Place. Um, what I really love is that there's a podcast that was created, I think, into the second or third season, hosted by Mark Evan Jackson. Um, he plays one of the, the minor characters, um, Sean, and he, he hosted the podcast where they, you know, they do episode recaps. Um, and, and it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of like listen behind the scenes of the TV show. And it's especially fun because it's a TV show that I really love. Um, but he also would end every episode asking his guests what's good. Uh-huh. And, and you just hear kind of all these variety of responses, oftentimes highlighting the work of a nonprofit, which uh-huh. is always really great. Um, but I always feel really inspired and, um, just kind of happy and joyful whenever I listen to that podcast. Okay. Um, so I, I recommend that highly. The second one that really, uh, I've really found very interesting and inspiring is called The Business with Kim Masters. Kim Masters is a reporter in Hollywood. She, uh, she's, she's written for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, many, many years in the industry, she was uh, kind of behind the scenes in the effort to break the story about Harvey Weinstein. Um, so she, she has been a beat reporter in Hollywood for a very long time. And what I find really interesting about her podcast is, um, it's this mix of interviewing entertainers, filmmakers, as well as exploring a lot of kind of the, the behind the scenes corporate, sometimes corporate nonsense <laughs> that occurs in in the film and television industry. And I find that really interesting just because I love kind of learning about some of the, the governance management issues that exist in other sectors and in other types of organizations. And I always find that very enriching when you can kind of think about business from a very specific perspective. Um, so I love the the first like 10 minutes of her podcast is a banter where she speaks with another reporter and you just get a lot of insight about how Hollywood operates and, and how the entertainment industry operates. And, and so I find that also very enriching. So thank you. And then our last question is, how would you like people to connect with you? So where can they find you? What should they do if they want to reach out? Sure. So the best way to reach me actually is on LinkedIn. Um, my my personal profile, but also my company has a profile, Miller Blake Consulting. Um, hashtag Miller Blake Consulting. Um, I I have some presence on on Twitter and Facebook, but but LinkedIn is <laughs> is like the key. Um, that is how much of a DC professional I am. Um, but my website also is. Uh, www.millerblikesconsulting.com and I also have a blog where I um, am just trying to continue to contribute thoughts and ideas uh, related to specific issues in governance. Uh, my blog is called uh, Treading the Nonprofit Boards, which is a kind of a takeoff of a theater expression. Um, Treading the Boards describes uh, Broadway slash theater acting, whereas treading the nonprofit boards is really just about, um, you know, exploring the world of governance and nonprofit organizations. So 
Um, I invite people to check out my blog, check out my website, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect. Yay! We did an episode or right. several. <laughs> <laughs> it's this is the this you can call it like the governance series with Rachel Miller Blake um, or something. Not to like easy idea. <laughs> hey, I'm open to it. I've got it. I've got other things to do. I'm like, if you can give me a title, we're in it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, I mean, I really appreciate what I think I've always appreciated about our conversations is, you know, you really understand the connection between, you know, finance, accounting, fiscal oversight, governance, right? It's, there is a through line there. Yeah. Um, so I would hope that, you know, our conversations definitely help to um, enrich sort of the larger dialogue about, you know, finance and accounting doesn't live in a bubble. It's also part of the larger governance landscape. Yes, I, I do. And I, that's part of my goal for just the podcast is to make, make that a little bit easier for people to get to say like, Hey, this is not, it's not just programs that run an organization. It's all these pieces run the organization. And if you want <laughs> to build that capacity, if you want to feel like we're stuck, I feel like some of that we're stuck is really just those back behind the scene pieces aren't working as well as they could. And until they do, <laughs> you're just going to feel like, man, how is this, how is this meeting? Why do we talk about the same thing every time? Again, that's not, a program issue that is a governance issue. It's a, mm -hmm. we haven't thought about putting the agenda together. We haven't thought about, is this even the committee we should be talking about this meeting in? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that is all. So did you guess the same elephant that, I, <laughs> that we actually talked about? Would love to know your thoughts. I would love to hear if you have some differing opinions. And please be sure to connect with Rachel over on LinkedIn. Bye.